Chicago, this is Bruce Dumont with our Beyond the Beltway analysis of national politics. Facing occasional injections of room and innuendo all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Republican Jeff Hom, Progressive Salim Muakil, Republican Jim Oberweiss, and Democrat Gilbert Villegas. Our program tonight coming to you via the Museum of Broadcast Communications in Chicago in the Paul and Angel Harvey Radio Studio. Nice to have you with us. Our phone lines open at 1-800-723-8289. That's 1-800-723-8289. If you want to tweet me a comment, it's at Dumo, at D-U-M-O. If you want to also join us on the World Wide Web, it's beyondthebeltway.com, and that's where you can get not only uh, this broadcast, but again, all virtually all past broadcasts. If you miss us on a Sunday night, we're always there. And of course, we're also on live on Facebook, and we're live on the Bruce Dumont Facebook page, uh, Beyond the Beltway Facebook page, and also on YouTube. So you can find us just about everywhere. And by the way, let me mention something at the top of the program. A little bit later on in the broadcast, I'm going to give you specifics for a way for you, wherever you're listening from coast to coast, to participate in the Democrat debate that's coming up on Wednesday and Thursday night. We are going to do a special edition of Beyond the Beltway on our YouTube channel and on our Facebook page, and it's gonna happen immediately after the Democrat debate is over. You're gonna have an opportunity to call in here, offer your instant analysis. You won't have to wait for the pontificators around in Washington and New York. You can do it right in your in your living room. And again, I'll we'll tell you more about it. That's gonna be Wednesday and Thursday nights. And again, immediately after the debates, the debates are gonna be over at nine o'clock central time, and we'll be there for two hours taking your response. But we'll talk a little bit more about it later. And one of the subjects, obviously, that I think is going to be uh, discussed. Uh, hopefully it will be discussed. And that is uh, the shooting down, allegedly by Iran, of a $131 million drone. The president looked like he was about ready to take military action, and then according to published reports, at the very last minute he pulled back, and he, he has limited his response to a cyber attack. Jim Oberweiss joins us. He's a longtime uh, activist in the, in the Republican Party, uh, Illinois State Senator, and also is uh, now seeking a, a congressional seat. So let me ask you, Jim, uh, what, what should be the appropriate response for $131 million of, uh, of, of U.S. armament? Well, Bruce, I'm, uh, I'm certainly very concerned about getting into a real shooting war, a, a situation like Iraq. Uh, I don't have access to all the information that the president does, so I'm relying on him to have made the right decision in this case. But uh, I, I think it's, it's very dangerous if we get involved in, in starting a real war, starting killing people. So uh, I'm crossing my fingers and hoping that he's done the right thing. But again, we can't sit here and accept uh, that type of thing happening on a regular basis. So I hope that the economic sanctions that he's going to add will be enough of a deterrent. Gilbert Villas also joins us. He is a, a longtime member, or the last four years, of the Chicago City Council. You're a Chicago alderman for those we talk about periodically on this program. So around the nation, they're going to meet one tonight. Uh, this is not normally within your area of expertise, but let me ask you. I mean, the president's uh, response, some people are saying he wimped out and some people are applauding him. What would you do? Uh, well, again, not knowing all the details and not being in the situation room with the president and his staff, 
I'm hoping that he's relying on his Department of Defense to give him some advice on how to proceed. I mean, obviously, the simple fact that Iran is shooting down a drone in in a in a in a, in a, in a neutral in neutral territory is concerning. But again, not knowing all the facts kind of puts me in a position where I really can't comment on that because. Uh, just, just as Jim mentioned, I'm hoping that he's getting some good advice from some of his Department of Defense and listening to them. Now, Jeff Helm, it appears that his Department of Defense and some of the national security people were saying, go ahead, you know, make the military strike. And so uh, he, again, according to reports, he didn't listen to them. Is that a good idea? Are you um, I mean, sharing I, that decision? Well, so I think that, that we should not let a uh, country like Iran dictate the terms of our engagement, right? If they want to get into a shooting war with us, um, that is something that we should not enter lightly. Um, I think that actually actions like this, as well as the um, the mining or bombing, whatever you want to call it, of the, the oil tanker recently, mm -hmm. shows that actually the financial pressure we've been putting on Iran is working because they're acting out and they tend to act out when um, that kind of stuff happens. So I think the, the first answer should be diplomacy. Sanctions are part of diplomacy. Um, I think if we, we should not enter a shooting war with Iran lightly. Okay. Salima Wakil, uh, you are our progressive. Uh, mm -hmm. Traditionally, you are anti-war. But she in this that. particular case, uh, did the president do the right thing? Did he do the right thing for the wrong reason or the wrong thing for the right reason? Well, he's, <laughs> he, he set a fire and then he put it out. Basically, um, I, I, you know, first of all, hiring J John Bolton was a provocative move yeah, by But he by did itself. it. Everybody knew that he was going to do it, but he made the decision. Bolton, well, let me ask you this question, because mm -hmm. you're, you're not a John Bolton fan. No, not at all. Do you give the president credit for overriding John Bolton? Yes, I do. Okay. I, I do give him credit, but, you know, uh, but it's m very, very minor credit. And, really? and um, you know... We, we talk about um, Iran as if it's some sort of provocateur in all of this, and they're not over our territory with, with drones. Um, so I don't understand why people feel that we have some sort of divine right to, to be in Iran's uh, proximity and threaten them, and not only that, but strangle them with economic sanctions that are uh, extremely onerous. Jim Oberweiss. Yeah, in international <laughs> airspace, they have no right to shoot down our well, aircraft. We weren't in international sure. airspace. We, we were well, over their territory. Yeah, yeah, I don't think that's the case. But in well, any event, uh, I, I just want to raise an issue that, that really is, is, is uh, strange to me. The stock market, normally, if, if there's a, a threat of you know, shooting war of some sort, would tend to uh, take quite a dive. Gold did rise quite a bit the last mm -hmm. couple of days, but the stock market has held very firm. So that, that, that's a puzzling result. It, it must imply or that, that most people don't think there's going to be a serious shooting war going on there. And yeah. I, would, I would kind of object to the classification of Iran as like an upstanding member of the global community. Since 1979, they have been one of the foremost exporters of terrorism. Where? Where? Where at? Uh, where? The the. Marine barracks bombing in Beirut. Well, um, the the who um, invaded Beirut? It, it was a marine barracks, though. I know, but who invaded that that country? It, it, it was. A, it was it's a sovereign country that was invaded by Israel. We we went there to protect them, and so Iran was reacting to that. And Hezbollah, for example, they they were the, the, the Shiites who had been traditionally and routinely uh, invaded by Israel. Israel, um, they were being protected by Hezbollah. And Iran is their, is their I mean, benefactor. The, the USS coal bombing, it, was that also a pr provocation mm -hmm. by the United States? The U.S. coal bombing? The U.S.S. coal, yes. You mean in, in the Mediterranean? Where yes. we were, where, where, what, what were we doing in the Mediterranean? 
I mean, that's where the what the fourth fleet operates out of. Mm, mm, okay, all right. No, so no. are you are, are you arguing as Jeff suggests that there's there's nothing there's no dirt on on Iran's hands or that it's, it's well, only the United States that's uh, has dirt on their hands? I think uh, the United States is is trying to provoke Iran into some sort of and some sort of conflict. I, that's what I think. So you think for oil, that for oil the shooting down? So just to clarify, just to clarify, the shooting down of the drone. Then you think was a deliberate provocation yes, on the I part do. of Iran, and the president? No, no, didn't. no. I don't think it was deliberate pro provocation on the, on the part of Iran. Well, they I think shot Iran, it down. Well, because it was over Iran's territory. They shot it. Well. There's a lot of people that don't agree with that. Well, most, most, We've international, got most international. 1-800-723-8210. I've got to go to a break back mm -hmm. shortly. <laughs> my name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. This morning on Meet the Press, the president was on with Chuck Todd. Yes, believe it or not, he did the interview with Chuck Todd. And uh, Chuck Todd asked all the hardball questions that you would expect him uh, to ask the president, uh, who he has not been able to really interview since he became president. But one of the things that the president uh, shared when he was discussing what was going through his mind uh, when he decided uh, to 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 pull back on the raid, I think even he didn't like the word pull back, but the reality, that's what it was. But he said he was worried about 150 Iranians that were going to lose his life, lose their lives. And he talked about that he had a lot of friends in New York. He basically said some of my best friends are Iranians from New York. And, and the thought of, of killing 150 Iranians, it bothered him. At least that's what he said. Now, Salim, you may not buy it, but I'm going to ask you, Gilbert. It, it, you know, there's been so much uh, trash against this president. Can you, as a Democrat, do you think that that the president was telling the truth with that? Do you uh, think he has no. a heart for? No, I, I don't. I don't think so. And you can just look to our southern border to see what type of heart this administration has when you're taking a look at uh, what's going on in these concentration camps. Um, so, do you really think I, they're I, concentration I, camps? When you have your administration arguing to to a uh, some judges that they shouldn't have the people that are coming here seeking asylum shouldn't have soap and toothbrushes. I mean, what, what's wrong with this administration? I mean, we got to have some But it's not gassing them, Alderman. No, 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 it's not yeah, I would, no, no. I gassing them. I would take is that issue with that classification. I would, say, I would say that the way that, the way that it's looking now, where you have em employees of the, of the federal government that are, that are there uh, watching over these people that are seeking asylum, having to wear masks because of the stench, I mean, treating these people. Or fearful of disease. Well, 
but, but take a look take a look at the the circumstances and the conditions that the United States the greatest country in the world how they're treating these people that are coming here seeking political asylum I mean this is this is just wrong so I think that when we're talking about the president concerned about 150 150 Iranian uh, uh, Iranians mm -hmm. I think I think that's I think that's I think that's BS I think the reality is is that he's concerned about getting into a full-fledged war <clears throat> Jim Oberweiss, by the way, let, let me just say to our national audience, uh, several years ago you ran against Dick Durbin for the United States Senate, and during that campaign you came out with a commercial, which you took a lot of heat for, and it basically you were flying over Soldier Field in a helicopter looking down and you said basically uh, the number of illegal immigrants coming to the, into the nation at that time could fill up Soldier Field. Everyone, every liberal reporter got all upset with you, the Democrats got upset with you, so you took a controversial uh, stand on this issue long before Donald Trump came along. So where are you now on what the president is trying to do? Well, I'm, first of all, let me just back up to that commercial. I want you to know that was based on a study done by a professor at the University of Michigan, and it had nothing to do with the problem we're talking about today, namely of people sneaking over the border. It was literally based on a study of people coming through our legal ports of entry being allowed into the country who should not have been allowed into the country. In other words, they did a second check after people came through, found out how many people mm -hmm. shouldn't have come through, didn't have the proper paperwork or what have you, and calculated the total number on an annual basis from that number. So uh, what we're looking at now is a very serious situation, and I would like to throw it back to the alderman. Uh, and ask for his suggestion. I, I, I think we all agree that we want to treat people humanely, uh, that we don't want to injure people. And, and uh, you know, uh, uh, my, my opponent for Congress made wild claims that the United States was intentionally killing uh, people coming over the border. Uh, and in fact, her Democrat colleagues forced her to kind of eat those words and deleted it from the record. Nonetheless, it's a serious problem. I'm not sure I have all the answers of how to solve it, uh, but I would ask the ultimate, what, what would you do if you had hundreds of thousands of people crossing over that border uh, illegally, and, and what do you do? It's very hard to, to provide them with uh, residence at the uh, Hilton or the Holiday Inn. No, I know, but we're, we're just, so they're seeking political asylum. These are people that are, in, that are desperate, that are leaving their country to, to seek asylum here in the United States, which is allowed under law. I would, I would challenge both the President and Congress to get the business to deal with this immigration issue that's been going on for decades. We've been Agreed. talking about I would, it. I would absolutely agree. agree. I, so we've been I, talking about this for decades. So my thing is, in the meantime, though, when, when your administration, the President's administration, takes a stance of separating families, I mean, that, that's, that's not what America is. Okay, well, so hang on. Not, yeah, wait, just, that's just, just not what it is. Look, the problem with that is, uh, first of all, it, not everybody is coming here for uh, the reasons that you're talking about. Some people just want a better life, they want a job, and, and I respect that. They're, they're, that's a valid reason to come. But I think we can agree, hopefully, that there is a limit to how many of these people we can accept. And we may disagree on what that limit is, but there has to be a limit. We can't take a billion people next year, for example. Would you agree with that? So I, I would I would say that there's current currently there's some rules on the laws on the books. Wait, let's see if we can agree. Would you agree we cannot take a billion people next year? I agree that we cannot take a billion. I mean, Would you agree we can't take 500 million people next year? I agree that we can't take 500 million right now. Would you we're agree we can't take 10 but, million people? But, but right now we're talking next year. about 11 million people that but, are here. Wait, I'm, I'm trying to get. I want to see if we can agree on something. Would you agree we can't take 10 million additional new people next year? 
if we have 11 million now, and it's been over the course of decades, right. I would say that to influx 10 million people in one year would not work. Okay, great. Okay. Okay. So, we're, so we're coming to some agreement here. Yeah. And the, the question is, there, there's a twofold question. What do we do with the people who are here, who've lived here, who've been here, who've become, attempt to become a part of our society? Mm -hmm. And then what do we do about the 10 million people or 20 million or 30 million people who want to come here immediately. I think we need a national discussion yep. to decide how many people right. we should allow in and make that number. But you can't then let people cheat on that because every time you do that, you're, you're hurting somebody who's following our laws coming here legally. It also has to be clearly uh, delineated as you just did. I mean, because the people that are here, let's refer to them as the dreamers. The, the dreamers, I think, deserve to be treated one way. It's different if you're coming in from Central America now and, and you have all the issues. In fact, one of the things that the, that the president is saying, and I want to find out whether there's common ground on this, I'll start with, uh, with you, Jeff, and that is he's basically saying those people who wanted to seek asylum in the United States, they went before a judge. The judge decided they were not going to be admitted. For whatever reason, they were not going to be admitted. The president says now, based on his recent pledge, which he pulled back on, on trying to get, you know, the, the, the raids, the ICE raids that were called off. He's basically, say, take that population. They've already been adjudicated before a judge. Go get those people and deport them. What's wrong with that, Alderman? Here, because there is a, a process that's in place, right? They're going through and the, the process. process was followed. The, yeah, yeah they're followed. Follow they're correct, they're following that process. So now you do have a right to an appeal, do you not? I mean, just because a judge... I don't know. I, I, I don't know the answer to that, but what I'm so, just saying so, is... So there is an appeal process. So th they should be allowed to wait here until their appeal process is, is uh, heard. So then you get couple, into the catch and release if problem. I may. Uh, there's a, there's uh, a couple Jeff. things here, right? So, Jeff and then so first off, um, these facilities that are now being derided at, as concentration camps, which is just ridiculous, um, were constructed under the, the George W. Bush administration or under the Obama administration. And suddenly, on January 20th, 2017, now what was normal is now egregious, right? I will agree that some of the, the photos look ridiculous um, and are heart-wrenching, but the idea that this is something done by the Trump administration and, and not reacting to a 500% increase in um, uh, asylees, right? So asylees are different from economic migrants, right? I, I'm very lucky to have been born here. If I was not born here, I would, I would be wanting to come here, right? But, but asylum needs to be adjudicated, and while they're waiting, they, they are not allowed free entry into the United States. And they can leave at any time. Right? That's, that's the other thing. I mean, people are not being dragged from their homes and put into camps, which is what a concentration camp is. These people are wanting to enter, and they're effectively waiting in a queue while their uh, cases are deemed credible or not. At the same time, they're saying you can't have soap or any toothbrush. They're separating. Because they're Congress, separating Congress no, has no. refused to fund they're the, the either construction. That's because of the Flores decision. This is all this stuff that's being laid at the at the um, feet of the Trump administration either predates or is the exact same as the Obama administration. But, but no, did. during the Obama administration, they took a stance not to separate families. The under this administration, it's been amped up. So, so there is. So here's the problem, right? So it, there is a decision, the Flores yes. decision, that says. Um, People under the age of 18 can only be held in one of these facilities for up to 30 days, right? Does someone, does someone who come, comes here with their children and they're breaking the law, 
Uh, you say keep all those families together. I mean, I, 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 here, I'm just asking. Listen, people, I want you to think about this, Bruce. Let's say you were leaving Chicago to go to somewhere else. Yes. And all you had was the clothes, the clothes on, the, on, on your back. Yes. You're taking this, 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 this trip to somewhere where, you're, where, where you've heard it's a great place. There's and, risk. No, absolutely. But what I'm saying is there's also laws here. This country was built on laws, and we're better than this. The simple fact that we're, you see these, all these photos and, and, the, and the separations. But and how, does that, Alderman, how does that differ from someone who, who goes through the court system, let's say is African-American. They go through the court system, and a judge decides they're going to go to prison for 10 years. That person doesn't go with their family. Right, they get separated they're from separated their family. Be, they get separated because a law was broken. It was adjudicated, uh -huh. a punishment was imposed, but you know there, every prison that you can think of, you know, on Father's Day and Mother's Day. I mean, these are very sad places because the families aren't there. Am I making a as an no, overstatement? No, that, that's, that's another aspect of all of this uh, yeah. in terms of the way African Americans see it. Yeah. And, and 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 by the way, we have, we do have to break. I, okay. I want to I want to come back. Okay. Come back. We're going to start with you on that point. One eight hundred seven two three eighty twenty nine. What can we do? I think uh, uh, Jim Oberweiss was trying to get to some clarity as to what people can agree with, and it would seem to me that if you're a member of Congress, uh, be a Republican or a Democrat. Uh, you should be asking these questions and you don't leave the room until you get a decision. Back shortly from Chicago. Keeping in touch with family and friends or reaching public safety officials can be challenging during power outages. If telecom networks are affected by severe weather or other conditions, the FCC recommends following these guidelines. Call 911 only when necessary and limit non-emergency calls. Avoid repetitive redialing to minimize network congestion. Try texting if a call doesn't go through. Conserve battery power. Switch mobile phones and devices to power saving modes and turn off when not in use. If evacuated, Forward landline calls to your cell phone if possible. If you're using your car to charge cell phones or listen to news on the car radio, be aware that carbon monoxide emissions can be deadly in an enclosed space such as a garage. Remember, always seek shelter in dangerous conditions and follow directions from public safety officials. For more info, go to FCC.gov emergency. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. Thank you very much for joining us. We're going to let each of our guests introduce themselves in just a moment, but let me remind you of something I mentioned at the top of the broadcast. This Wednesday and Thursday night on NBC, uh, starting at 8 o'clock Central Time, the Democrats are going to debate in two, uh, two sessions of, of 10 candidates each. And immediately after that debate, you can watch it on NBC or MSNBC, wherever you want to watch it. But as soon as it's over... Go to uh, our Beyond the Beltway YouTube page or go to Bruce Dumont Beyond the Beltway Facebook page. You'll connect with us and we will all be live. You will be talking live. You'll call our regular 800 number. You call and you offer your instant analysis of what you thought. And by the way, I would hope, since we try to do this, even in Chicago, we're trying to do this on the fair, on the fair, the fair and easy, uh, easy tonight. Uh, when you call, um, 
hopefully you're not part of a team that's been put together by one of the candidates to flood the show. We'd like to get real people with real passion immediately after it happens. So, I mean, if we end up with, you know, you know, 500 callers for Joe Biden, we'll know that something is wrong. Or 500 Bidens for Eric Swalwell. That would even be worse. Well, Swalwell would be a big tip-off. That, that would be definitely a <laughs> tip-off. Anyway, that's the plan. So Wednesday, Thursday night, just make a note of it. And again, as soon as the debate is over, uh, call us at 1-800-723-8029. And again, it's, you'll be able to see it. You'll be able to see it all on uh, uh, Facebook and also uh, on uh, YouTube. Uh, our guests are now going to introduce themselves, and we're going to begin with someone who's making his maiden voyage. We've, we've known each other, or at least of each other, for many years. He makes his first appearance, and that's Jim Oberweiss. Jim? Thanks very much, Bruce. Um, everybody should know that I am a business guy. I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, I've started an asset management company that today manages over $3 billion in, in pension assets. I started a family of mutual funds. And when my older brother had a stroke and was unable to continue in the family business, Oberweiss Dairy, which makes very great milk and ice cream, uh, I ended up buying that business. Um, it, I was the uh, Republican nominee five years ago against Dick Durbin and gave him the closest race that he has had in his entire Senate career. He got 53%. I beat him in 88 out of 102 counties, but of course, uh, Cook County was enough to uh, sway it in his direction. Uh, I have been elected to the Illinois State Senate twice now, but again, I'm a business guy, not a politician. I think that makes a huge difference. I believe strongly in term limits, and uh, I'm now running for uh, U.S. Congress in Illinois 14th, a, uh, a very competitive district. In fact, the uh, Republicans think it's one of the three most likely Republican pickups in 2020. Okay. And uh, uh, Gilbert Villegas joins us. Tell us who you are, Alderman. Absolutely. So uh, recently elected Alderman, about this, my, starting my second term, uh, chairman of the Economic Capital Technology Development Committee. Prior to being elected, I did, I, I did work in state government and also run a trade association where I was uh, advocating for infrastructure in Springfield, uh, Illinois, as well as in Washington, D.C. Currently, uh, I'm the floor leader in the city council. How did you get to be the floor leader? Because well, you, you weren't the first to endorse Mayor Lightfoot, but uh, how did that happen? Well, That's just, a coveted position. Uh, well, I appreciate that. So, uh, well, so they say. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, um, in my discussions with, uh, with Mayor Lightfoot, once the runoff took place, I went ahead and endorsed her and made sure that uh, the Latino community came out and supported her. Mm -hmm. uh, and so during that time, me and her had some great conversations, and then when she asked, uh, when we talked about committee chairmanships, she also uh, saw that I was a, a person that can compromise, and she wanted to, wanted to, wanted someone like that on her team. And that's that's a very key position because keeping uh, the Hispanic community uh, happy and satisfied politically is is an important key to her reelection. So she's put a lot of. Uh, pressure on you and, and, and confidence in you at the same time. Yes, yes. Jeff Holm. Jeff, tell us again who you are. My name is Jeff Holm. I'm the club development chair for the Young Republican National Federation. Uh, it's a nationwide organization of young Republican clubs. Uh, I used to run the Chicago Young Republican uh, chapter uh, for about three and a half years. Um, I'm, uh, we have uh, biennial elections every two years at the national level. I'm currently managing a campaign of a slate, um, and if we get elected, when we get elected, I will be the new political director of the Young Republican National Federation, which will be a very cool position going into a presidential election year. I'm a native son of, of the suburbs, and I'm proud to be living in Chicago. 
And you once sold ice cream for Jim Oberweiss. I did. I did. When I was in high school, I worked at an Oberweiss store. Okay. It, was a, it was a great job. Silly Muakil. Not good you for have, my waistline. You have one of the most interesting resumes of anybody we've ever had on this show. Well, yeah. Well, I, I usually uh, talk about my political pedigree, uh, the Black yeah. Panther Party, the Nation of Islam. But I also kind of um, have two feet in, 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 uh, in, in alternative, one foot in alternative journalism and another in mainstream journalism. I'm one of the few black journalists who has had a column in both the Sun-Times and the Tribune, as well mm-hmm. as uh, working as a columnist for the for In These Times for 30 mm-hmm. years. Yeah. Uh, and also I do a radio show on WVON mm-hmm. um, and, you know, many other things. So, yeah. Before the break, you were about to make a point when we were talking about how African-Americans uh, are reacting to the immigration raids and the mm-hmm. broader issue of immigration. Share yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's some ambivalence there, you know. There's, there's and also this, we're talking about as it relates to even even prisons. Yes, indeed, right. I mean, there, there is this issue of, of uh, citizenship, you know, that African Americans have been questing citizenship since since we've been here. It's been a very important demand of, of African Americans, and yet it's now being treated as if it's a negligible thing that, that no one cares about or that is, that is easily compromised or easily uh, uh, negotiated away. And so that's one thing. And also, immigration is such a powerful emotional um, issue. Uh, you, you see, it, it's really fueling this right-wing populism in Europe. It's basically a reaction to, to the refugee crisis, the flood of immigration uh, in, in Europe. And so we have to be very careful about how um, politics are, are uh, you know, in, inflected by mm-hmm. these immigration pressures. And, and, I, and one of but in uh, Europe, the concept of a melting pot has never been part of their history. It is uh, allegedly it is in the United States, mm-hmm. and I want to find out from everybody whether the melting pot concept of immigrants is still something that everybody believes in. Is it still a good idea, Gilbert? I, I, absolutely. I mean, this is this is a, a beacon of hope. The United States is. Um, we have, you know, people that are that are wanting to come to this country. Because this is a place where you can start with nothing and end end up being successful, um, and so you know this is this is just a new chapter in immigration. When the Irish came over, when the Italians came over, we've we've seen this we've seen this we've heard this story before. Now it's the Latinos. You know, turn. There's another element though, in yeah. this, and that is um, this. You know, p- part of this 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 rush uh, to, to these borders is a is a product of of the imperial um, overreach of this country in, in Central America and in Latin America. The, the, the oppressive policies that we have uh, enacted in those, in those particular societies has, has, has caused go, a lot of economic go, destabilization. That's, and going, that's, back, that's going back a long way well, in many cases. Far, but again, far. I mean, if, if, you are, if you're a, a family living in El Salvador and you worry about crime, if you're a parent, you want to get out of that. Exactly right. But the point is, I don't think you can blame that on some policy well, I mean, part, part, part of years it ago. is, I think we should look to that as well. well I mean, we I should know, consider that. you got to deal with what's happening today. Jim? We can't so, simply ignore our complicity in this. And all I, did, our I did not ignore it. I'm just saying is that in the world of politics, there has to be a priority. I mean, yes, what sir. can we do? Yes. If we provided more foreign aid to those countries, would that foreign aid be used to create educational opportunities and to stop crime in those areas, or is it not? Or is the problem in Central America a systemic crime problem? There's corrupt politicians. That is the money true. that we send to them is not getting to the people that need it. I mean, I th- wouldn't you acknowledge that? Well, that, that's 
Now you, I, I, is you that know, just, it's not just the United States, you know, being stupid about sending money. I think you have to be very, very conscientious about how you monitor where that money is going. Uh, how well, USAID, I, uh, the USAID program is operating in those particular countries. I what think everybody would, would agree, agree with that. Jim? Salim, I'd like to tell you a quick little story, and I think you'll appreciate this. Yes, sir. In 1970, I was a student at Northwestern University Law School. At noon, we used to have a variety of different speakers come in and talk to us. Uh, one was a young man by the name of Fred Hampton. You mentioned the, the Black Panthers. I'm sure you know who Fred was. I indeed. Um, I was intrigued by his story because I was a, you know, a, 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 a living in Aurora and didn't know much about Black Panthers or didn't know a whole lot about Chicago at, at that time in my life. Uh, but I was intrigued enough that I decided that I wanted to know more. And I literally, on several trips into law school, I was living in Aurora, driving in, I brought some milk for the Black Panthers breakfast. They had a feeding okay. program in the morning. Right. And their argument was that, you know, if kids don't have something to eat in the morning, they can't learn, they can't study as well. And it, that appealed to me. So I, I did that, and I, it was an interesting experience. But on top of that, Fred Hampton, in that speech, said that he lived in fear. He was afraid that he was going to be assassinated or killed or shot by the police. And I kind of, you know, yawn, that, that, that doesn't happen. The police don't do anything like mm -hmm. that. And Approximately 60 days later, I turned on the evening news, and holy cow, mm. uh, there had been a raid. Uh, he had been shot, allegedly sleeping in his bed. Uh, and I can't remember the name. The state's attorney. State's attorney's police, right. Uh, yeah. Do, do you remember the Ed name? Hanrahan. Hanrahan. That's Ed it. Yes, Hanrahan. Hanrahan. Exactly. December 1st, 1969. Um, yep. That's right. Okay. It must have been 69. I was in law school. Okay. I, got 70. <laughs> I said 70. I was off by one Unless year. Unless I'm off. <laughs> um, You're right. That's right. That's right. Um, it was It was quite an experience. And quite frankly, that really made me think, what is the truth in a case like this? Mm -hmm. Sometimes what we're experienced or what you know what we assume to be the truth because of our limited sphere of, of experience and knowledge isn't always the truth absolutely back right. to the issue of, Go ahead. of immigration i mean one of the things that completely gets overlooked is that there are people who are trying to follow the process paying tens of thousands of dollars trying to do it and there is special treatment given to people who have entered the country illegally i have friends who are trying to go through the process they're from india trying to go through the process right now the green card process i had one of them get recently sent back to india and there, there's no sympathy there but, but yet there's different we, treatment given. we got to pause we got to pause and i want to ask the question when we come back where do these people get the 30 and 40 thousand dollars to pay a coyote should they be paying somebody else back shortly hmm. I'm Ryan Sandberg, and I want to tell you about Miracle, the musical, inspired by the 2016 champion Chicago Cubs. It's one of the best productions I have ever seen. Now playing at the Royal George Theater. Do not miss it. Millions estimate their benefits online so they can do what they want offline. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago, and uh, before his appearance on Beyond the Beltway this evening, Jeff Hom, you were out hobnobbing in uh, the suburbs, uh, Lake Forest. Yes. And uh, Mitch McConnell was there. Yes. So was he coming in just to see you? Uh, yeah, I, I wish. I wouldn't. I wouldn't trek all the Why way to Lake Forest. Why didn't you bring him down though. to the show here? Yeah, you I'm know, sure Salim would have a few questions oh. about <laughs> reparations for him. I, I'm sure he'd have a great time. 
Um, so yeah, so Mitch McConnell was here uh, talking about um, the importance of keeping the Senate in 2020, as well as what their legislative agenda has been. The over 100 judges and justices that have been confirmed to either, well, we got two on the Supreme Court, two justices confirmed to the Supreme Court that take a strict textualist meaning, meaning that the words actually mean something and it's not whatever you want it to mean. Um, so it was a really cool fundraiser. Got to um, go out there um, with a, probably a group of 15 or 20 young okay. Republicans. And uh, got did to- you wrote, Did you write a check? I, I did not. You did that? How did you get into it? My God. It's, you know, that's the, being a young Jim's Republican. Gotta, he's got to give you a little certain, more seasoning uh, that those things, <laughs> those things don't just happen. I want to go back to, to an issue that, that uh, has been, uh, been discussed, and that's the issue. We're going we're to get into Joe Biden's uh, problems this past week in the next hour. But mm. one of the issues that's coming up by some of the candidates is the issue of reparations. Mm. Now, most people that are probably listening to this show this evening don't think that's a good idea. Salim, why is it a good idea in your mind? In realistically, the costs involved as well as the political will that would have to be expended to get what a lot of African Americans believe is theirs. Yeah, you know, but um, ironically, or maybe not ironically, but the majority of Afri African Americans don't believe that reparations is is, is possible. They don't believe that this country is ready to do to do that kind of action. Um, I, I I think that as talk you know increases as as the discourse grows and as public hearings increase and people have more access to data revealing the um, accrued disadvantage that African Americans suffer, then people will begin to look more favorably upon some kind of compensatory program to deal with these, these historical injuries. Is there any place for that in Congress, Jim Oberweiss? Well, uh, let, I, I think that's a very difficult subject. I think it would be very difficult to enact something that would be fair. And as Salim said, I don't think the country is ready for that. However, let me say this. Uh, as I said earlier, sometimes, you know, because of our limited experience, we don't understand some of the things that other people have gone through. I, when I was younger, I couldn't understand how people could live in fear of the police, but I'm beginning to understand. In fact, I've become very good friends with Pastor Corey Brooks here in Chicago. Mm, okay. uh, that guy, in my opinion, is probably the best human being I've ever met in my life. He mm. will do anything for other people without caring about getting any credit for it. And as a result, I'm committed to trying to help him build uh, a center uh, on South Martin Luther King Drive. He's an admirable guy, no doubt. That, that, Absolutely. That would allow kids to get off the streets, stay out of gangs and away from drugs and a training program. In fact, we've given them uh, a franchise for, for Oberweiss Dairy, for our other two restaurant chains, hmm. that burger joint and uh, uh, Woodgrain Pizza, so that they can bring kids in there, teach them those, those basic skills, and hopefully help them get a job. And I, I would do anything I could to help Pastor Brooks. He's, he's just a phenomenal guy. I want to go back to something we discussed earlier, and uh, Alderman, I want to come back to you. The people that live in your ward and, and the Hispanics in the Chicagoland area, uh, how fearful are they of a knock on the door from ICE? Well, I think this, when you heard the president talk about coming to major cities to conduct raids um, via ICE, um, there was our, my office got a lot of inquiries as to what does that mean and what what can I do to make sure that I'm treated correctly and, and know my rights. And so there's been a big push by 
um, Latino elected officials, the mayor as well, to inform people on their rights uh, as as people that are here in, in the United States. And Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago, said that she had issued a, a, a directive to the police department. They are not to cooperate with ICE on these raids. Right. And so she's not the only mayor to do no, that. No, she's not the only. Mo most major cities uh, across the country have, have uh, issued uh, similar orders. Um, and so when, when we're taking a look at how this is, again, this is the president playing to his base, in my opinion, playing to his base. Because now you're talking about we're going to hold it off for two weeks until we get Congress uh, and using people um, and, and, and fear mongering to get what it is that he wants done. And the reality is that's not how you negotiate. This is we're not talking about a business here. We're talking about people's lives. And so you need to get to um, back to Washington, D.C., stay in Washington, D.C., and deal with Congress, convene some meetings on but how it this is, is going to work. But it isn't just the president. I mean, you've got to have Nancy Pelosi, who said you well, know, she wasn't going to give it. anything for the wall, which right. we, we can separate the wall. Right. But again, all these conditions that you were talking about, I mean, Nancy Pelosi, she has the bully pulpit to make this an important issue. Why doesn't she just bring the Democrats back? Because, or, or is she fearful that she doesn't want to lose that issue? Well, no, that's here. So you're, you're not, you're not going to hear uh, the Latino community saying that this should not be negotiated. This has been going on for way too long. So I would urge all congressmen uh, throughout the country, Democrat or Republican, to get to the table to start dealing with this issue. We've got to put this issue to bed and, 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 and put some type of pathway to citizenship. I mean, we're talking, we have veterans that have served the country that were, that were non-documented after their term didn't get the citizenship that they were. But a pathway for dreamers and people that have been in the country. We or, are you want to, or do you want to provide a pathway? You personally want to provide a pathway to people that just snuck in the country no, two months ago. We're talking about the, we're dealing with the 11 million people that are here today. We've got to deal with them first before we begin to deal with the others. Okay, we got to pause. 1-800-723-8029. When we come back in the next hour, we're going to be talking uh, about uh, the Democratic debate coming up and also some things in the Democratic uh, campaign that just happened this past week. Joe Biden got stuck his foot in his mouth. We're going to talk about that. And also we're going to have a author, uh, and we're going to talk about a new book called Panic Attack, Young Radicals in the Age of Donald Trump. I'm Bruce Dumont, back shortly. Sandberg, and I want to tell you about Miracle, the musical, inspired by the 2016 champion Chicago Cubs. It's one of the best productions I have ever seen. Now playing at the Royal George Theater. Do not miss it. Millions estimate their benefits online so they can do what they want offline. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family, and community lending their strength and support. Join the Voices for Recovery. Together, we are stronger. 
for 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders for you or someone you know. Call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Keeping in touch with family and friends or reaching public safety officials can be challenging during power outages. If telecom networks are affected by severe weather or other conditions, the FCC recommends following these guidelines. Call 911 only when necessary and limit non-emergency calls. Avoid repetitive redialing to minimize network congestion. Try texting if a call doesn't go through. Conserve battery power. Switch mobile phones and devices to power-saving modes and turn off when not in use. If evacuated, forward landline calls to your cell phone if possible. If you're using your car to charge cell phones or listen to news on the car radio, be aware that carbon monoxide emissions can be deadly in an enclosed space such as a garage. Remember, always seek shelter in dangerous conditions and follow directions from public safety officials. For more info, go to FCC.gov emergency. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago, hour number two of Beyond the Belt We Begins, and we're going to talk about some democratic politics after I welcome uh, new listeners to our broadcast this evening. We have added Roanoke, Virginia, and Bedford, Virginia. They're part of the Three Daughters conglomerate of stations in Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia. They join us tonight for the first time. So, again, 1-800-723-8029 is the telephone number. We always look for participation of uh, new callers, and we'll get to some callers in just a moment. But one of the other big issues, or, or again, let's say this, a, a kerfuffle. I'm going to describe it as a kerfuffle. Mm-hmm. Last week, Joe Biden was making a point and sort of bragging about the fact that he could get along with all kinds of people, and that's part of a positive thing in his background. In referencing it, he re- referenced the ability to get along with James Eastland, uh, who was a, a well-known uh, segregationist at the time, and Hermit Talmadge of Georgia, two immensely popular uh, governors uh, or senators uh, in the in the 60s and 70s. And all kinds of uh, people got upset about it. Mostly Cory Booker got upset about it. Kamala Harris got upset about it. And so let me ask you, Salim, uh, <laughs> the fact that, that Joe Biden, by the way, uh, John Lewis had no problem with it, mm-hmm. um, and uh, uh, Claiborne had no problem with it, Senator, mm-hmm. uh, Representative Claiborne. But did you understand what Joe Biden was trying to say, and was Definitely. there a better way for him to say it? Definitely. I mean, it was generational. It's a generational yeah. um, di- divide here. Uh, Biden was simply choosing the, the most egregious actors to, to, to illustrate how, in, in times past, we could communicate, even with these these outliers. 
Um, and that was his point. But he chose the segregationists, and that just hit the wrong hit the wrong button. For Did this, this hurt Joe generation. Biden, uh, Gil? I think so. I had to Google those senators' names just to see how far yeah. back they went. Because, I, I mean, I was. Yeah. I, I, I agree. Very young man. Yeah. <laughs> General A is out of touch. I mean, we, we've we've got a the Democratic Party needs to start looking at um, getting some getting some candidates that I think can appeal to current the youngest generation, which are the millennials, which which I think um, will bring out some additional uh, voters. I just think mm -hmm. that we've got uh, Joe Biden. Um, and I just think, Who's your candidate? Have you got no, a candidate no, yet? Just too many. I, 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 I thought you were going to announce tonight, Bruce. No, no, no. There's too many. I mean, well, uh, Congressman Joe Sestak of Pennsylvania announced to be the 25th person mm. into the debate. He obviously will not be part of the debates coming up this week. But, but, but clearly, uh, so you see it more of a generational slip as as opposed yeah. to that he's going to lose a lot of votes with African Americans. Yeah, I, I think it was a generational. Jim Oberweiss. Yeah, I I hate to defend Joe Biden, but uh, in a case like this, I mean, I think it, looking at it the broader picture, it seems to me we as a nation are going way too far on the pro political correctness stuff. I mean, that, that, that's just gone to a crazy extreme. And quite frankly, I think that's one of the reasons that that Trump has gained the popularity that he has, is he's very anti-PC, and a, a lot of people but feel you, frustrated but with But would it. you agree with him that maybe it wasn't so much about the racial issue, but maybe it was more about just sort of a generational, giving, giving uh, you know, as if, you know, you know, we were to talk about you and I were to talk about I Love Lucy as this great new show. Yeah. I mean, a sure, lot of people who were twenty wouldn't buy that. I actually watched that on Nick and Knight. Sure, but yeah, I think but that fits back into the whole PC idea. Uh, what was acceptable for us twenty, thirty, fifty years ago is no longer politically correct to or, make that same kind of. Or story. is the broader issue, Jeff? I want to get your point. Is the broader here issue here is that Joe Biden represented being he was in the Senate for thirty six years. So we term limits, was, term was, limits, need he, term limits. He was involved in a lot of deals, but he was old school. He is old school. He was old school. And the Democrats of today, because of either a strong progressive bent or a strong generational bent, they don't they don't want anybody that gets along and goes along. They want people who are going to fight for it. And they're not looking for compromisers. I that think that's that's the big sin here with Joe Biden. I think what it shows is the lack of the Democrat Party to come to term with its segregationist history. Um, Talmadge, East, Eastland, um, they're both Democrats. They were both Democrats from the South. Uh, Robert Byrd, Glad, Grand Cyclops of the, of the KKK, yeah. also a Democrat in office for more than a dozen years. Um, and it, more than it, 50 years. Well, yeah, right. I, I didn't remember the number, yeah. but I knew it was high. Um, I, I, it just... it. But that's not what Kamala Harris brought it up. I mean, she didn't bring it up, and, and Booker didn't bring it up. Booker, you know, he, he chastised Biden, and then, you know, Biden, they had a phone conversation. He said, well, you know, he thought that uh, that, that Booker should apologize to him. Mm. It was like he was being insulted by this younger uh well, obviously not that he was Booker even an African-American senator. Booker was simply trying to exploit this, this uh, discomfort oh, yeah. that, that, that Biden is feeling. That, that's basically his point, trying to up his poll numbers. But, um, I, I, and I, but I think most African-Americans forgive Biden for this. They understand the context, and they don't um, begrudge him for this kind of comparison. But I think it is a, a, a mistake, a political mistake, because he's, he's um, illustrating his generational 
um, alienation from, mm -hmm. from what the major kind of move in the Democratic Party is right now. Okay, well, we'll, uh, we'll find out again. A reminder that on Wednesday and Thursday night, this, uh, the Democrat uh, debates are, are coming up. They're going to be on NBC. And again, right after the debates are over, uh, we are going to have an instant show here on beyondthebeltway.com, also on our YouTube channel, also on Beyond the Beltway, the Facebook Live page. And again, uh, in case you're keeping track, let's uh, go over the list of people that you're going to see on Wednesday night and Thursday night. It's, it's an interesting the show way in which they... The time you read all Yeah, that. it's going to be... But I'm, I'm going to do it quickly. <laughs> on Wednesday night, uh, on Wednesday night, uh, we are going to have uh, uh, um, Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, Amy Klobuchar, John Delaney, Beto O'Rourke, Julian Castro, Tim Ryan, Tulsi Gabbard, Jay Inslee, and Bill de Blasio. That's on Wednesday night. On Thursday night, you're going to get Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, Kirsten uh, Gillibrand, Michael Bennett, Eric Swalwell, John Hickenlooper, Pete Buttigieg, Marianne Williamson, and Andrew Yang. That's, that's the way they're dividing them up. Another question, uh, again, coming back to you, is that uh, Pete Buttigieg has been sort of on a roll for the last several months, and yet uh, this past week uh, there was an officer shooting uh, in South Bend. He had to come off the trail, go back, and he ran into some problems from uh, African-Americans back in South Bend that, that didn't think that he handled this police shooting very well. Did it? How badly do you think it might have hurt him? He, he was never really that popular uh, in the African-American community. I don't, I don't think it really hurt. It, it hurt him a little bit, but I don't think it, it's significant. I don't think it's significant damage in terms of his overall campaign thrust. Can I, can I ask you a question? What do you That's think? So immediately, Buttigieg, realizing that he needed to shore up relations um, in the black community in South Bend, uh, turned to Al Sharpton. Mm. What, what do you think of Al Sharpton being the go-to, like, I need to do outreach to the black community, therefore I need to, you know, cozy up to Al Sharpton? Um, it's problematic, man, because, it, it, it again, it, it makes um, one man a savior type of figure. Um, but Al Sharpton is a, is a popular guy, and he, he has a wide portfolio. And so he's called, uh, he's called by a lot of people who have problems. They think that he can be very uh, helpful. Joe Biden called him, too. Yep. They Indeed. both called him. So well, he's both like the out. fixer for the black mm -hmm. community well, that, for hey, Democrats. Hey, Jesse Jackson probably wasn't yes, available. He was, indeed. 1-800-723-8289. I'm Bruce Dumont. Your calls when we roll on from Chicago. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support. 
for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. Thanks very much for joining us. Let's go to Frank listening to us in Austin, Texas. Go ahead, Frank. You're on the air. Hello? Frank? Hello. Go ahead. Hi. Go ahead. You're on the air. Turn your radio down. I turned it off. Great. Make sure you turn it back on when the call's over. Go ahead. I, I will. Thank you. I was listening to you all a few minutes ago talk about foreign aid. I grew up in Venezuela during the 60s and 70s when it was a nice country. And the Americans do not know how to spend money in foreign countries. The people that nearly did well down there were Rotary Clubs, Lions, some of these nonprofits that have clubs all around the world. And if we could somehow funnel more money through them, it gets to the people and bypasses not only our corruption, we do have some, and the corruption in so many foreign countries. But uh, that's my main point. And the other thing is that, you know, I listen to people saying we have to take care of these people coming across the border. We need to let make those people come through the channels that we already have. There's Vietnam people, there's veterans, there's Americans that aren't getting the service that these people who are sneaking across the and I'm sick and tired of it. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a shame. Those are my two cents. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much uh, for your comment. And again, I think he represents uh, at least part of the the, the huge crowd that was in Orlando last week uh, when the president announced his reelection. It was, uh, what did you think of that? It was pretty much of a blockbuster show. Well, before we move past um, Frank, I think he said he grew up in Venezuela, right? So so one of the things you see um, a lot is people who immigrate legally to the United States are some of the people who are the fiercest critics of illegal immigration because yes. they say, if I can do the, the, the time and the money to, to do it, then everyone else should too. Do you agree with that, Gil? I think that when you're in a country and there's all type of chaos going on and you say, hey, I'm going to take my pick up my family and go somewhere to, to seek some type of hope, I mean, you're not thinking about the process. You're trying to get out of that environment and make sure that your family, you and your family are safe. So there's there's a process in place. I agree with that, but we need to take a look at these these political asylum seekers that are coming to the border. And I completely I, agree for asylum. However, I, the cases that um, it's le- it's fewer than 10% is, are actually cases that when they're adjudicated for asylum are actually found to have a, a reason qualified under asylum, right? The rest are economic migrants who are looking for more opportunity, which. I'm I'm sympathetic to that argument, and I think we should increase legal immigration, but it needs to be done correctly. Aren't they supposed to have a sponsor as well, Gil? So I'm not familiar with the whole process of of seeking uh, legal status here or citizenship here, so I I wouldn't be able to answer that. Because I think if somebody has a sponsor and and they don't show up for a court date, it's, it's it's like blowing your bond. I mean, you should go back to the person that sponsored and and look for some payment there. Yeah, but we don't do that. 
Gil, uh, you know, I think you're you're absolutely right. Uh, this is a, a, a challenging situation for sure. But let me just make another point. When we allow, let, let's say these people who are willing to risk everything to come to this country and, and so on, those people are generally the same type of people, the same characteristics as entrepreneurs. They're people who, who want freedom, who want democracy. Arguably, we are depriving those countries of the people most likely to improve the economy in those countries through starting businesses and through seeking uh, a more uh, democratic form of government. And we're taking them from those countries to this country. So we're, we're really depriving them of the brain opportunity. Drain, you know? Yeah, right. In a sense, or I, I wouldn't call it a brain drain so much as a an entrepreneur drain or a yes. democratic drain. Or a thirst to succeed. Yes, that's they, they it. That's want to, they want yes. to succeed, and, and, and your point is if we let them in here, they may succeed in the United States, but at the detriment of the home countries that uh, if they've all fled there, who's going to save right. the country right. for the future? There's actually a similar dynamic going on in Illinois. People who can leave the, or the, the, the state for greener pastures like Texas or Wisconsin or Florida, uh, or Florida <laughs> do, and uh, those who are left... Um, uh, tend to vote for the same people that have created these problems. <laughs> One thing that uh, when the president gave his, uh, a rally the other, his rally the other night, he spent a lot of time talking about uh, 2016 and bashing Hillary Clinton. But uh, the other thing he talked about, he painted the picture of the Democrats, the Democrat Party. He called the Democrat, it's a party of radicals who want to destroy the country. And he went chapter and verse why he thinks the Democratic Party is out to destroy America. You're a Democrat. You're surrounded by Democrats in the city council. You're, you're, you, you've been elected by Democrats, even though it's a nonpartisan election. But you're the Democratic Ward Committeeman. How do you do? You think the president has enough ammunition to make the case that the Democrats are abiding too much by socialism idea, socialistic ideas, and that he's painted a picture of the Democrats that maybe a lot of independents will agree with? No, I think that what he's doing is. The president is taking a look at a segment of the Democratic Party and then trying to paint a picture that that's all the Democrats. You know, you can take a look at the right-wing Republicans who were the Christian right, et cetera, and if I was a Democratic candidate, I would be probably pushing it, pushing those, uh, uh, those ideas and saying that all Republicans are like that. So I think that's the reason why the president has has decided to hone in on the socialists because trying to trying to bring up the nostalgia of the, the the days when socialism was bad and saying that this is the type of socialism that we've com combated in the past and that they're trying to re they're trying to bring that here to the United States. So in, in your view, oh, and then I'm going to go. In your view, is that does the is the national media feeding that narrative of the president by giving so much publicity? to the three most radical members of, of the House, including AOC, no. because she looks good, she talks good, she's on television a lot, and again, they're, they're not taking into consideration that the reason that the Democrats regained control of Congress was because of moderates that were elected around the United States. You don't hear about them. Yeah, I but, don't even know who these people are. Yeah, but you have, so you have one segment of the Democratic Party that has a position and so when you're trying to move the Democratic Party, you're going to take a look at the whole, all of the members of the Democratic Party and trying to take a look at how, what, at the end of the day, Nancy Pelosi has to get a bill passed. So it cannot yeah. be a bill that maybe AOC is proposing, but perhaps it's one of the, one of the other Democrats that, that there's some negotiations internally to move the needle. We've got to make sure that 
that as 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 Democrats that we're not going all the way to the left, uh, but but we're trying to make sure that we're trying to compromise and then moving that needle slowly. But the radical but, fringes, <clears throat> the radical fringes make make the 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 less radical um, component of the party more credible. It makes it more creditable. And and uh, so AOC's provocative talk um, gives credibility to, to, to Democrats who are not as radical. And, and, and so I don't think it's, it's a negative thing. I think it, it, it increases the parameters of the party. You and don't think so she scares people in certain sections of the country? Well, yeah, but I, I think it, it, it offers an opportunity for people to say, well, hey, Social Security was considered uh, beyond the pale for capitalists at one point. It was considered a, a, a downright socialist pro program. Mm -hmm. And so was uh, um, the, the VA, many of the VA programs were considered socialist. And so we are living in a socialist, capitalist hybrid. So as, it, as it pertains to AOC, I think Pelosi said it best that a uh, glass of water with a D next to her name could get elected in um, AOC's district. That is a direct quote from Nancy Pelosi. That is not from Jeff Holm. Um, but if you look at the issues um, that are currently being debated in the Democrat primary, Medicare for all, um, every single one of those 25 have signed up for it, um, which would outlaw private insurance. Kamala Harris uh, prominently described that. You look at um, uh, Buttigieg, for example, who's talking about packing the Supreme Court to completely destroy uh, the institution. That, that limit of nine has been set by statute since, I believe, the, the 1860s, and they want mm -hmm. to double it so that they can make sure that their reforms that cannot be passed through Congress, through popular will, will be enacted by activist judges. I mean, that that is extreme. But Those isn't, are extreme but positions. isn't a presidential campaign the perfect time, descri you know, described by the forefathers, that's the perfect time to have debate over exactly. what's good and what's bad. Exactly. And, you know, some people are going to win, Expand some people are going to win. Absolutely. It's, it's let's, radical. Let's, but let's, let's debate it, but these are still too? radical ideas. That a campaign well, is a good time to question things out? It's a living it document. It changes. It's Absolutely. not a living document. I mean, the, the words the words written on the page mean something. It's, if, Jim, if I may, uh, Bruce, can I go back to Gil? As I said sure. before, I'd like to... Uh, uh, hear other ideas that I may not have been exposed to. Uh, and, and one thing that, that bothers me, it just seems common sense, but there must be another side of the issue. If we look at this country, we look at the big cities, you know, uh, Chicago, uh, New York, Los Angeles, they are in big financial trouble uh, across the board, and they're totally controlled by Democrats. We look at states like Illinois, where we are in extreme financial stress with the largest unfunded pension liability of any state in the nation, losing population every year for the last five years, the only state that's done totally controlled by Mike Madigan uh, and now J.B. Pritzker and, and the Democrats. How can we say that the Democrats are doing an okay job when the net result is what we're seeing? I, I, I gotta be missing something. Well, no, I think you are missing something. I think what you're missing is the 30 years of, the, of Republican control that was under that the governors have for 30 years. I, I, I think will, you missed that. Remember, wait, this wait, didn't wait. happen overnight. Okay, just a minute. Let me go back. Okay. I will admit that some of our Republican governors fed the system, but understand, Mike Madigan has had control of the House in Illinois since for Nixon 34 of the last 36 since years. The There's only one two-year term that he didn't have control, and even then, they have major... Gentlemen, we got a pause. Mike Madigan <laughs> is the Speaker of the Illinois House, the longest-serving Speaker in the history of the United States, and he has a vice-like hold on what happens in the state of Illinois. When we come back, we're going to be talking uh, with an author, uh, Robbie Swave, who has written a new book called... 
panic attack, and it's about radicals and how they're treated in the age of Donald Trump. Back shortly. Keeping in touch with family and friends or reaching public safety officials can be challenging during power outages. If telecom networks are affected by severe weather or other conditions, the FCC recommends following these guidelines. Call 911 only when necessary and limit non-emergency calls. Avoid repetitive redialing to minimize network congestion. Try texting if a call doesn't go through. Conserve battery power. Switch mobile phones and devices to power-saving modes and turn off when not in use. If evacuated, forward landline calls to your cell phone if possible. If you're using your car to charge cell phones or listen to news on the car radio, be aware that carbon monoxide emissions can be deadly in an enclosed space such as a garage. Remember, always seek shelter in dangerous conditions and follow directions from public safety officials. For more info, go to FCC.gov emergency. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, in our last uh, half hour this evening, our guests will continue in the studio, but we also are going to welcome uh, Ravi uh, Suave. He is uh, an associate uh, editor at Reason.com, and he has authored a new book called Panic Attack. And, uh, Ravi, nice to have you with us on Beyond the Beltway. Thank you for having me. Great to speak with you. This book is about uh, radicals on uh, campuses and elsewhere uh, and uh, how they have uh, grown in power and influence during the Trump administration. And uh, I'd like to begin by asking you just uh, uh, basically, I mean, you've, you've done the book, you've done the research. Uh, how serious is the problem? Well, I think it's quite serious at many of the most prestigious uh, liberal arts colleges in the country, places like Harvard and Yale and Reed and Oberlin and the UC system and the Claremont colleges. Uh, there have been a number of incidents where a small number of activist students uh, who are very far to the left have, um, have stopped important conversations from happening or who have shut down outside speakers. Um, these activists say that uncomfortable speech or speech they disagree with is not only uh, bad, but is a threat to their emotional well-being, and thus it's perfectly fine and, in fact, necessary to stop from someone who has a different political view than you from, uh, from participating in the conversation at the university. And they've been very successful at these kinds of tactics over the last five or so years, and uh, it's certainly something to be concerned about when you know a place like Harvard where where the next sort of generation of leaders of the country are going to be educated and you have a cabal of activists running the show there. Uh, when you say cabal, how many people are we talking about? Do you, can you give us a guesstimate on it? So that's the thing. We're talking about a very small number of people. We're talking about mm -hmm. you know maybe five percent of the campus. At Harvard it's been about 50 activists uh, who persuade, for instance, recently they persuaded uh, the university to investigate a law professor uh, who is who is a, a Ron Sullivan, who's a notable uh, expert on criminal justice issues, who's, who would you would consider a member of the progressive community, but he is now representing, or, or briefly was representing Harvey Weinstein, uh, which is you know no stranger to him because he's represented all sorts of controversial clients. That's what you do if you're a defense attorney. But the student said him having this client makes the campus an unsafe place. They wanted him investigated and they got their wish and now he's no longer going to be faculty dean of one of the colleges. So a small number of people, 
making a considerable difference on campus. That's what I'm concerned about. When I went to college many, many years ago, of those left of center and those right of center, and again, this was during the Vietnam War era and the Civil Rights Movement, uh, if they wanted to bring people to, to campus, they would go and they would talk to the administration. And the administration at that point generally let uh, let everybody come to campus. Uh, so I'm, I'm wondering if that basic inquiry, in other words, if, if someone right of center wants to bring, uh, let's say, someone to campus, uh, how does that word get out, and how quickly does the left respond uh, uh, to shut them down? Well, it's a case of, of the, the controversy and the attention serving both sides to some degree. There have been, you know, I don't mean to, to let the right off the hook, there have been right-leaning groups inviting provocative speakers whom I don't actually think have much to say intellectually, doing it solely and then let, you know, letting everyone know this person's coming well in advance because they want, they want an incident to happen because it, it draws more attention to their group. Mm -hmm. To some degrees, the administration and various colleges has been caught in, you know, they've been caught between a rock and a hard place. They, they, some of them want these events to take place, but then they don't want to be disciplining their students and they don't know what to do. They, they don't know how to stand up to this minority uh, this, uh, of students, this small mob who is militant against the event taking place. And, uh, and they've, they've struggled with that. Those who are critics of all things leftists in the country, they tend to try to blame George Soros for a lot of stuff that's going on out there. To what extent is George Soros uh, responsible at all for funding these activities? Um, I, I would say not to a considerable degree. Obviously, uh, there there is funding of a certain amount of activism on the left and on the right. But there's a, and, and it's also not the case that, you know, many conservatives think professors are brainwashing their students, essentially. Mm -hmm. Most of these students that I talk to, these activists, learned what they're doing from other student activists at other campuses that they're in touch with via social media. It's very easy to keep in, in to, to interact now with people across the country. Um, to some degree, they already have this mindset that, that they want their emotional sort of state coddled by the administration almost before they even get to college. So I'm skeptical that it, it's either a, it's a sort of conspiratorial or it's, it's, it's this, it's outside authority is funding it or, or the professors are pushing it by and large. No, it's just the students having decided, having realized they can get away with this kind of thing, having learned maybe from other students. And, uh, and that's more the, the, the scope of the problem than anything So it's else. a millennial mindset. Yes, it's a mindset, though it's by no means generation-wide, because we're talking about a small number of people. However, mm -hmm. you, you know, it only takes a couple people. What's happened on campus for the last 10 years is a small number of people have weaponized sort of the policies and, and almost even the, the laws in place or, or the policies in place to prevent harassment. Um, they've weaponized, for instance, anti-sexual harassment policies in a much broader scope than those those policies were ever intended to to police sort of all uncomfortable speech that has to do with gender and also of race to some extent. They can also, but they and now they're entering the workplace, and again, just a few people, but they can do the same thing. If one person complains, you know, the the the, the firm or the entity or the authority feels that they could be in trouble with customers, with the government itself, if it's a matter of federal law, and they're humoring these people 
to kind of the detriment of a climate of free expression. That's what I'm concerned about. Jim Oberweiss is here. He has a question for you. We've got others as well. Go ahead, Jim. Well, it wasn't so much a question as, as it was a, a comment. I mentioned earlier in the show, uh, I talked about the fact that in 1969, uh, Northwestern University allowed uh, Fred Hampton to come in and speak to the group. That was a pretty uh, far step out at that time. Uh, but I think it's great if we can um, listen to people on far sides of these issues. And I think there's less of that today. Uh, would you agree that, that uh, part of this is due to our news services? I mean, 10 years ago, I listened to CNN, and if it was on CNN, I was pretty convinced this is, this is good factual stuff. Now, it's, it's, CNN is so biased. Uh, and then you got Fox News on the other side, where they're presenting the other side of the issues. Uh, it seems to me we need a news service. In New York Times, I mean, that's probably the most extreme example. I thought they were great, and now I think they're absolutely off the wall crazy. MSNBC is the worst. If these news services, we need somebody central who will present both sides of the issue, and I think we've, we've lost that. You know who's great at that? Reason Magazine. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I agree. I agree with your comments, and I've been, I've been, uh, I am very critical of a lot of uh, work that is done in, in the media. Obviously, some of it is quite good, even in places like the New York Times and CNN. But then I think their opinions often start to come through, especially if social media. You know, you follow these people on Twitter. They're supposed to be objective reporters, and their stories are fine. But then you see them expressing all sorts of opinions, rushing to sort of judgment and conclusions um, in their in their social well, media uh, presence. And it really undercuts the work that they're doing on other fronts. So, a lot, a lot uh, of that, so, so that is a problem. Don't you think a lot of that has been prompted by the uh, the ascension of Trump, of Donald Trump, uh, and, and his... No, uh, it was happening before that. Well, true, but I think it's been ex exacerbated by, by his tenure. And, and also, um, don't you think that some of these folks have a compelling argument there, there, there is a reason why the administration often sides with these radicals, uh, because they make they make a certain kind of sense, don't they? Uh, well, on the first one, I, you know, I, I agree with you. I mean, Trump is as responsible as anyone else for this kind of polarized media climate. He has positioned the media itself as his enemy, as his outgroup, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And then some in that group have kind of risen to that to that level or sunk to that level, rather, uh, but not everyone. People get dragged into it. Trump has framed That's it true. as this, you're with me or you're with the media sort of contest, and that certainly hasn't helped matters. Um, on your second point, you know, in my, I think if you read my book, I am sympathetic to what some of the activists want. I, I mean, I'm a libertarian. I agree with certain values progressives have, but it is interesting to watch their changing attitudes toward whether, like, free speech itself is a good thing. Like, if you went back to the mm -hmm. 1960s, it was leftist students fighting for the right to invite right. anyone to campus. And they actually, they brought a, they brought a Nazi to campus in 1963 mm. just to prove that we should be able mm. to have discussions with anyone, right. no matter how horrible this person is. And they didn't, they didn't shut him down or heckle him. He gave, he, they just laughed at him and then they learned from it and that was that. There's no way you could do that today. You would, they, the campus would be shut down and we'd have like a day of national mourning or something. Robbie, is, is Antifa, in the groups that you've looked at, uh, is Antifa the most um, most radical? Are they the most violent? Is there much coordination between Antifa, who, who's, whose activities do break out in violence, and some of the other groups that also are included, whether it's the Parkland Kids or Me Too or Black Lives Matter? Uh, Antifa is a little bit on its own. Yes, they're they're the group most likely to uh, to kind of on the left at least most likely to endorse violence. 
their ideology is that is is sort of anti-liberal to its core, anti like classical Enlightenment liberal. They don't believe that uh, that free speech or the First Amendment is a good thing in the abstract. They want rights for people who agree with them and to deprive rights. Uh, they they want to deprive rights to people who don't agree with them. That's they're very clear on that position. And they you know they've been they've been around in Europe at least since the 1930s. They actually have a long history, in my view, from doing research from this book, for actually calling uh, calling more attention to the to the fascist groups that they were supposedly trying to you know stop in the streets. Because if you went back to the 1930s. Uh, the newspapers only had to kind of cover what the fascists were doing if there was some big, you know, incident on the streets. And so then there'd be writing about the fascists and then other people would actually like join the fascist group because Antifa had been attacking them in the streets. And I think that dynamic continues to today a little bit where you're giving these people attention when you should just ignore them. And that would be a better policy. Ravi Suave is joining us. He's author of the book Panic Attack, Young Radicals in the Age of Trump. We will continue in a moment. Hi, I'm Ryan Sandberg, and I want to tell you about Miracle, the musical, inspired by the 2016 champion Chicago Cubs. It's one of the best productions I have ever seen. Now playing at the Royal George Theater. Do not miss it. Millions estimate their benefits online so they can do what they want offline. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. We're also talking to uh, uh, Robbie Suave, and he uh, joins us uh, from uh, New York, I assume. Uh, uh, Washington or New York, uh, Robbie? Uh, Washington, D.C. Washington, okay. Well, we're, we're beyond the Beltway. You're inside the Beltway. The name of the book is Panic Attack, <laughs> Young Radicals in the Age of Trump. And uh, Jeff Hom of the Young Republicans, he's got a question for you. So uh, I'd be interested to see, you know, we, we all watched the Oberlin uh, case play out over the last couple weeks. Um, and it seemed like there was an administrator who was actually, I believe her name was Michelle Rodriguez, who was one of the chief instigators of all the protests there. So um, what, to what degree are the administration, even a small minority of the administration of these colleges actually helping to um, inculcate this, this uh, environment? Uh, that's a great question. So I think so. Certainly, there are some administrators. I don't know, maybe maybe a third of them, maybe more, maybe less. It depends on the institution. Probably more at at, uh, at where this took place at Oberlin, um, who are yes, who are deeply sympathetic to the activists who kind of share their values and their goals and are maybe uh, you, you know more than willing to help them and look favorably on them. Um, that's not all administrators. There's also a number of them who I think might sort of balk at what some of the students are doing, but they think to sort of, uh, I think to confront the students or to, or to uh, encourage or to discourage them, I think they think that would be worse or that would reflect negatively on, on them and their role or would be maybe a PR, a, a, a black eye for them or something like that. Um, you know, I mean, if you're, if you're a, so, so the story of education over the last 30 years, 20 years at least, is hiring massive armies of bureaucrats, of administrators at colleges and universities. You know, the the, the vice president of, of student diversity and residence life or something. I mean, these are people who are paid very well, whose job is to kind of make the students feel coddled. So, so to some degree, they're just doing kind of their role, which is to which is to make sure the students are happy, even the ones making very unreasonable demands. So, so I think that's 
probably a slightly bigger issue than than ideological alignment with the students. Although, of course, you will find administrators who satisfy that as well. How how widespread is anti-Semitism at the core of the expansion of uh, this uh, this phenomenon that you're discussing this evening? Yeah, so it's very interesting. There's obviously um, a, uh, there's anti-Semitism in the far left. I mean, you see that with some of the organizing, for instance, of Black Lives Matter, a group that that I'm actually I'm sympathetic to some of their uh, their goals and their concerns about police brutality. Um, but you know, you, you see their leaders have been, have been very unable or to some degree unwilling to disassociate from anti-Semitic figures like uh, like uh, like Farrakhan of the Nation of Islam. Um, of course, the far right or the alt right, which is a group I also talk about in the book, them being a new young activist movement, but on the right rather than on the left, um, they are are rapidly anti-Semitic. Um, so there's it's a little bit of, a, of the horseshoe where where the more uh, sort of extreme and outside cent the centrist views you go on both the right and the left, they start to mirror each other. Um, so there's a, so a, the more sort of extreme you get, the more you'll, you'll find kind of this uh, this uh, desire to blame everything wrong on society on Jewish people, mm -hmm. um, which again that's people sort of far left and far right. And uh, uh, where where right. do you put the success thus far of the Me Too movement? That that seems to be uh, perhaps one of the most successful cultural transformation and political transformations that we've seen in the last. 10 years in this country. Would you agree with that? I, you just cut out for the first half of what you said. I'm just what saying is, is the, the, the Me Too movement. It seems to me that the Me oh, Too yes. movement may, may be one of the most significant transformative movements that's out there, just given that you know it, it became an issue a couple of years ago. And again, some of the biggest, most influential people, certainly in the entertainment world and politics, uh, they've been done in by that movement. Sure, and I'm, I, you know, I'm glad they've called out some of these figures who really, for years, got away with bad behavior. People like Harvey Weinstein, obviously. Um, I all, but I also criticize the movement in my book of, of, I think, overreaching in some cases. I mean, there's people like Aziz Ansari, who's a comedian who was dragged for this like terrible article that ran on a kind of not a reputable uh, uh, news website, but they they produced it anyway. That was just this very. Uh, uh, not factual and not it didn't make a lot of sense uh, quasi allegation against him and of course on campus there's a climate of believing victims who accuse uh, often young men of wrongdoings in these very murky uh, 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 encounters that are often alcohol and drug fueled and began consensually and, and there was a whole kind of throwing due process out the window that occurred particularly on campus so you know, while obviously this movement has done a lot of good, um, well, you I think were, some Robbie, of the you activists were, you were, associated with it have gone to yeah, yeah. Uh, ridiculous extremes. You were one of the first to really uh, call out what happened at the University of Virginia with the rape charges there. How did you get wind of that story, and uh, and how did you, you you obviously smoked it out, and uh, to your great uh, journalistic credit? Well, thank you. I, I uh, you know after I read it a couple times. Um, I started to, there's details about it that, that stuck out as, as not making a lot of sense. For instance, Jackie, the, you know, the woman who alleged that she had been uh, a gang assaulted by like nine people, that A, she said she, she had not been drinking, so she was not incapacitated with alcohol. What I know that in, in you know, the vast majority of these cases, that's, they, that's how they incapacitate the victim. 
And also, she would have known who had done this to her if she was on a date with him. So how would he, he expected to get away with it? There's just a lot that didn't make sense. And then she was not accusing a specific person. Mm -hmm. She was accusing a person it turned out was was made up, was, was you know, not a real person who was being, she was catfishing her friends. Robbie so, Suave, uh, I, so I thank it, you it very kind of much. It fell apart dramatically after it was. We've got to run. I want to thank you very much for being with us. Robbie Suave, he is an associate editor at Reason.com. Also, the new book is called Panic Attack, Young Radicals in the Age of Trump. We thank you for joining us this evening. Our thanks to our guests around this studio as well, Salim Mouwakil and Gilbert Viagas. Viagas. <laughs> Did I get it right? Viegas. Viegas. That was pretty close. Jim <laughs> Oberweiss and Jeff Hom. That's easy, Jeff Hom. Our thanks also this evening uh, to Hector and to Bretta and to Charles and to Andrew and to Fritz and to everybody else. Don't forget Tuesday night, I'm sorry, Wednesday night and Thursday night, the 26th, the 27th at 10 o'clock Central Time. Come right back here, beyondthebeltway.com. Go to the go to uh, YouTube. Go to the Facebook page and offer instant reaction. Your analysis of the Democratic debate that you've watched on NBC. I'm Bruce Dumont. See you hopefully all on Wednesday night. Hi, I'm Ryan Sandberg, and I want to tell you about Miracle, the musical inspired by the 2016 champion Chicago Cubs. It's one of the best productions I have ever seen. Now playing at the Royal George Theater. Do not miss it. Millions estimate their benefits online so they can do what they want offline. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness. Helping themselves. And helping each other with friends, family, and community lending their strength and support. Join the Voices for Recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders, for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Keeping in touch with family and friends or reaching public safety officials can be challenging during power outages. If telecom networks are affected by severe weather or other conditions, the FCC recommends following these guidelines. Call 911 only when necessary and limit non-emergency calls. Avoid repetitive redialing to minimize network congestion. Try texting if a call doesn't go through. Conserve battery power. Switch mobile phones and devices to power-saving modes and turn off when not in use. If evacuated, forward landline calls to your cell phone if possible. If you're using your car to charge cell phones or listen to news on the car radio, be aware that carbon monoxide emissions can be deadly in an enclosed space such as a garage. Remember, always seek shelter in dangerous conditions and follow directions from public safety officials. For more info, go to FCC.gov emergency. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, 
we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org.